our second uh, Bible reading, um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Uh, a few of the Bibles, it's on 1287. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have preserved and have endured hardships for your name, for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hope this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These are the words of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Galton, for reading God's word to us this morning. As John mentioned, we are a multicultural church. We have the refined English accent, if I might put that. We have um, John with his background of Vietnamese uh, accent as well, and myself with the Sri Lankan accent. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing it is for God's people from every tribe and nation uh, to be uh, part of God's family. And then Galton from China as well. It's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? Well, brothers and sisters, let's come to our God in prayer and we'll look at God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious church that meets here as brothers and sisters in Christ from every nation we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, and may we be a church that will grow to love and serve our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we uh, continue our study on the book of Revelation, and in particular this morning um, we're going to start the first of the messages regarding uh, the seven churches. And so today we will look at uh, the first of these churches, the church of the church at Ephesus, which is Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7, and I've titled the message this morning, The Church's First Love. We know last week that the risen Savior Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, or the seven churches. In Revelation chapter 1, 12 and 13, we read this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. So Christ, we established last week, is in the midst of his church. 
He moves among these churches. He knows what goes on in his church and he stands ready to help his suffering church in this world. And the church is his. He is the head of his church and he is the source of life for the church through the Spirit. And of the seven churches, only two of them receive no warning or condemnation. And these churches are Smyrna and Philadelphia. And as we look at the church at Ephesus, let me give you some quick, uh, quick background information that I think will be helpful. Ephesus was the political and social hub of the region. It had a large port and so became the chief communication and commercial link between Rome and the East. It came under the power of the Roman Empire in 133 BC. Wealthy citizens donated lots of money to construct temples and other structures in order to have the favor of the emperors by dedicating temples and other monuments to the emperors. The Romans constructed many public buildings and gates in Ephesus. Important Roman highways met at Ephesus. And when Augustus became emperor in 27 BC, he made Ephesus the capital of Asia Minor, which is most of the modern Turkey. And Ephesus at the time had few equals anywhere in the world. Stamped on the coins were titles such as this. First of all the greatest. The first and greatest city of Asia. And so with the city's beautiful location together with the fertile soil and with its excellent climate, it was a great place to live and to work. And no wonder Rome had a very keen interest in Ephesus. And further, Ephesus had the largest Greek open-air theatre. It could accommodate about 25,000 spectators. There was also a stadium for chariot races and fights with animals. But above all, Ephesus took great pride in its greatest temple. Ephesus was really famous for its great temple, a shrine to the goddess Diana or Artemis in Greek. And the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. It was some 425 feet in length, 220 feet in breadth. It had 127 white marble columns, each 62 feet in height. And the focus of the temple was on an image of the goddess Diana, said to have fallen from heaven to earth. And so the temple was so popular that Ephesus became the religious center of Asia. We read of this temple in Acts chapter 19 that there were silversmiths who made shrines of Diana and sold them. We read, for example, of the silversmith by the name of Demetrius who made images of Diana and sold these images. And so Ephesus was a contemporary, vibrant, cosmopolitan, religious city. It was a free-spirited city. At the temple, all kinds of things took place. There was a free sense of sexual activity as well in the city. It was a vibrant, cosmopolitan city. And into this city, in the midst of this cosmopolitan, contemporary, vibrant, and free-spirited city, a church is planted. 
Christ plants his church right in the middle of this city. You see, God is concerned for our cities. He's concerned for our towns. He's concerned for our countries. Uh, we live in one of the greatest cities here in Melbourne, don't we? They say it's the, the best city in the world to live in. Of course it is. For all the sports and the cafes and uh, all, all of the surroundings that we have in our great city. It's a wonderful place to live in. But we know the challenges that confront city life as well. In today's world, we live in a free-spirited world, don't we? We live in a world that pushes Christianity out to the very margins. But God is concerned for our cities. He's concerned for our nation. He's concerned for people. And right in that city, a church is planted for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was there for three years. Apollos served at Ephesus. Paul put Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. And according to early tradition, John himself labored in the church at Ephesus. So in that sense, the church at Ephesus was a very strategic church for the work of the gospel in the region. And so that's the kind of background we have for this church. And this morning, if you want a brief outline of this, uh, of this passage, I've just broken it down this way. The praise, the problem, the solution, and the assurance. Um, and that's the kind of outline that we are going uh, to follow this morning. So, let's look at the praise. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, chapter 2, verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The letter is addressed to the angel of the church, or to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. That is, we've established already that the angel here, or the messenger, is to the minister. It is sent to the pastor of the church. You see, the minister has that responsibility to preach the word, and to see that the word of God flourishes in that place by the power of the Spirit. And so this comes from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and from the one who is among the seven golden lampstands, that is, the churches. And what does Jesus say to the church at Ephesus? He says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I know. Well, that gives us a great insight about who Jesus is. You know, we just read this text and we can say, well, yeah, so what? It tells me something more with those two words, I know. You see, the Christian gospel, the Christian faith is based on Christ who died, who rose again from the dead, and who is the living one. A dead person can know nothing, right? Once we die, that's it. But not so with Christ. He is alive forevermore. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and 
the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. You know, I was saying to Rose yesterday, Saturday morning, we were having a discussion in the, in, uh, in the room. I said, you know what? There are many lovely Bible texts uh, that people have as their favorites. I said, I began to un- love this Bible text. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And I said to her, when the Lord calls me home and you're around here, let that minister preach from that text. <laughs> because in that text gives us great comfort for life now because we know that he is the Alpha and the Omega. It has given me so much peace, I can tell you that, because I've been walking most times and I've been praying that text through in my life to say, Lord, you know the end from the beginning in my life. All things are under your plan. You are the Alpha. You are the Omega. What a great comfort that is. This Lord, this living one, He says, I know. I know. What a comfort that is, isn't it? I know your life. I know what's going on deep within yourself. I know the struggles that you are facing. I am with you. I am the good shepherd. I am your savior. And I know. Wow. You see, he has knowledge of everything. Nothing escapes him. He is all-knowing. What we might call the omniscience of Christ. All-knowing. And we saw last week that when John was in the spirit, he saw the exalted Lord with piercing eyes. And John gives us the description of the Savior. We saw that last week. His eyes were like a flaming, like a flame of fire. He sees everything. These are laser sharp eyes that nothing escapes his penetrating eyes. He knows what's going on in every church and in all its activities for the church he sees. He cares for his church. He's the loving one. He knows his people. He is our good shepherd. I know the possessive pronoun your is in the singular year, which, which means that is, he's saying, I know you as a minister. I'm writing to you, but I'm also writing individually to members regarding the spiritual health of the church. I know your motives. I know you. And the church at, at Ephesus was a diligent church. Have a look at the text. I mean, how could you find fault with a church like this? <laughs> I know your works. I know your hard labor, your toil. I know your patient endurance. You are continuing on. I know that you have not become weary. I know that you are bearing my name. You are bearing up for my name. That is, you are seeking to honor my name in the church. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they said Jesus is Lord. You see, the name of Christ is the most precious name. And it's not about my honor in this place. It's about the honor of Christ, correct? It's his name. And the leaders must remember that. It's not about what I think and what I want. It's about him and what he wants. It's about his church. We are just stewards here. John and myself, by the providence of God, uh, we are ministers here. 
set aside to do the work of gospel work. For we are just stewards. He can take us both out, just like that. His work continues. That's the point. The Lord knows everything. He's, and, and so this church labored hard and kept going on in the midst of his challenges around it in a cosmopolitan city. Notice that this church was also a discerning church, as we note in, two, in, in, in this passage. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You see, they did not waver on doctrinal matters, and so were, they were doctrinally sound. They were able to discern between false and true teaching. They remain true to God's word, which is one of the marks of a healthy church. I was reading through the Westminster Confession uh, last week on, on, the, uh, on the matter of the word of God. You see, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the subordinate standard of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. If you want a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, please see me or John, we can get you a copy. You can go online and read it as well. Uh, it is a subordinate standard of the PCA. And it says this regarding biblical authority. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed does not depend on the witness of any person or church. But entirely on its author, God, who is truth itself. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. It doesn't depend on any witness of any person or church. It depends on its author, entirely on its author, who is truth, and that is God. So we accept the word of God in this church, both Old and New Testament, as inspired, inerrant word of God. And we uphold the scriptures, because only then we'll be able to discern between true and false teaching. So, brothers and sisters, get into the Word of God. John encourages you to go and join a growth group. If you can, get in there. Get into the meat of God's Word. Read the Scriptures. Be able to discern what is going on around us. May the Word of God richly bless our lives. Read it with your children. We, we read Deuteronomy chapters, uh, chapter 6, right? Love the Lord your God and so forth. But if you read further, you see that the text says, Impress these things upon your children. That is, talk to your children about the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Discuss the Word of God. And may they grow in the Word. You see, this church knew the Word. And Jesus says this as well, very quickly on verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they were a discerning church. The question is, who are these Nicolaitans? Uh, we will come across these guys later as well in another letter to the church. The name Nicolaus means he conquers the people. They were a heretical group, probably holding views that were similar to the teachings of Balaam and that of Jezebel. Balaam, chapter uh, Numbers 22-25, taught the children of Israel to commit fornication. He taught them to intermarry. And in doing so, God's people compromised with the world. Jezebel seduced people to sexual immorality. You look at if, uh, Re Revelation 2.20. Uh, 
And so the Ephesians did not follow such teachings, nor compromise themselves with the world, and hence they are praised by Jesus. All good so far in the life of the church at Ephesus. Jesus compliments his church, he praises them on all accounts it was, and looks a great church. Now, he tells them that they had a problem. Now you might look at the church and say, what is the problem? They know the word, the doctrine is sound, they are working hard, they are persevering in toil. Uh, they, are, they are it. What's the problem in this church? You might say, look at St. Stephen's. Oh, we are a busy church, aren't we? Have we got a coffee house tonight? Fantastic, come along. Uh, we have our growth groups. We have our missions team. We had our missions team meeting last week. Uh, on Thursday night and discussed about our mission. We have our ESL programs, we have our children's programs, we have our kids' programs, uh, we have a seminar coming up soon. We are a very busy church, correct? And it looks all right. But, 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 <laughs> correct sometimes, because it's never perfect. It's a never perfect church. We, we live by the grace of God. That's the point. The church is a redeemed community, saved by the blood of Christ. Very remember that. And so here we see this church. It wasn't a perfect church. The perfect church will be in heaven. Right. This church had a struggle. And its problem was a heart problem. The problem went to the heart. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore, verses 4 and 5. From where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, when Jesus, who knows all things, looks into the heart, looks into the engine room of the church, what does he find? He finds here in this place a love problem. You have left your first love and I have this against you. What does this first love mean, friends? Well, it does not mean that they have lost their love for each other. I can't see that in the text here. No, I think my understanding is that this is not a general first love. This is a specific love. It is, I believe, a reference to a spiritual time when they first came to know Jesus Christ, and then they had this deep love for him, and it is possible now that the newer generation of Christians here at the church at Ephesus had not focused on loving Christ. And so their love for him has grown, has gone away. The church had lost their first love. This is the problem. Think about it this way. As for those who are married and those who are going out uh, and wanting to be married, you know, or especially those who are married, when you, when, you, when you met the person you loved, right? how was it? Were you singing, love is in the air? Everywhere I look around, you know that one? Right? There's a spark, isn't it? There's a spark. Love is everywhere. Love sparks are going out everywhere. You see, when Rose met me, she was all bubbly, because she had met this punky guy from Sri Lanka. <laughs> all the way. And her love was, wow! She was thinking, man, I met the guy. I had lots of hair. <laughs> it's a bit on the podgy side, but it's alright. <laughs> 
and she, and she was all, all, she was so ecstatic. Not really well, so was I. Right? When I saw her first and I saw her singing at, a, at a, the church, and the wow, yeah, that's interesting. I, I really want to be involved, I want to know this person. And you know what happened, friends? I said, very quickly. On the 31st night, I was invited for a dinner dance, because you know I always like dancing, and I danced the night away with Rose, and it was all good. And then after that, I needed to go to preach at a church, and I didn't have a car. And so the best, best excuse I made was, Rose, can you give me a lift to church? Because I have to preach, and if you don't take me, you are the guilty one. <laughs> anyway, that's how it all happened. And we are still very, you know, by God's grace, we still love each other deeply. You see, and in a marriage, love for each other has to be cultivated and worked on by God's grace. I was uh, listening to uh, Joe Cocker. You know, listen to Joe Cocker's music. Some people, oh, I see a few hands going, oh, good, good, good. And one of the songs of Joe Cocker is, hey guys, I'm going to play this to your wife, it'll be great. You are so beautiful. Get that out and play it for her. Or sing it for her. Anyway. You know, keep the loving relationship going on. You see, love has to be worked at. It needs to be continued on. You see, love does not suddenly grow cold. It is, it's a process. It starts with little things. And when love grows cold in a relationship, then it becomes a loveless one. And it can become a very mechanical thing, isn't it? You do things mechanically. But when you put love into it, it's like when you, you watch MKR. Maybe. You know, they always say, and you put love into your cooking, or have you just cooked it like this? And I'm thinking like, what love? I'm thinking like, when I cook, I don't think of love, I just want to get this thing done. And now I'm learning, when I cook, to put some love into it. And I'm still trying to work out what does that look like. (laughs) You're chopping onions, you know. How can I put love into it when you've got tears coming from your eyes? Anyway, you see... The point is, Christ, that love element comes out, isn't it? See, Jesus talks about this problem. This does not mean that they had lost their love for Jesus. No, they lost their first love. You have left your love, the first one. That's the Greek translation. See, John starts commenting on this, says that they have become, they were backsliders. It is not merely that they had lost their love for Christ, but it is also a lack of devotion for him. What a danger that we can fall into as well. So Jesus does not need our love for him to be fulfilled in his life. He doesn't need my love to make him complete. He is love. He is the very embodiment of love. He is God in the flesh. He doesn't need my love to make him complete. But he desires the love of his people. That's the point. For the Christian life is a love relationship with Jesus. And that's the point, friends. In the New Testament church, the bride of the, the church is called the bride. And the bridegroom, Christ, now says to the church at Ephesus, You have abandoned the first love. A sad situation. Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of Matthew. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. All your heart. How is love for Jesus? How is your love for Jesus this morning? 
We are talking here about a relationship. It's a serious question, friends. Is our love for him deepening? Is our love for him maturing? Is there a desire to keep on loving Jesus? Jesus says to the church, you have left your first love. How sad. What will he say to us here at St. Stephen's? You're working hard. You're doctrinally alright. You're doing lots of activities. I want to ask you, St. Stephen's, how about your love for me? And I want to put this question to us this morning. When is the last time that you said to the Lord, Lord, I love you. You are my first love. Not my wife, not my husband, not my child, even though I dearly love them. My first love is you. And that's the, the thing for us here as well. So what's the solution to this problem? Jesus gives them a solution. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So repent, he says. Remember. It is translated in the, in the original as keep on remembering. It's very easy for us to forget, correct? We forget a lot of things in life. It says, remember, memory is a very precious gift. You think about that. How much of memory we have stored in our systems here? More than a computer can store, I would think. Memory. When we do a funeral for somebody, we put pictures up and we go down memory lane, don't we? Thinking about the person. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember me. He rem, rem, let us remind ourselves of his grace to us. Let us remind ourselves this morning of his amazing love for us, friends. Let us remind ourselves this morning of his death on the cross for our sins. The forgiveness and mercy to it given to us. Of his glorious resurrection that is alive forever. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And repent. Repentance means to have a right about turn. That's the Greek text. That's the, the word there. Repentance is a change of direction where it takes us back to Him. Repentance is a lifelong aspect of the believer's walk. Repentance means turning around and having a change of mind. That is, Lord, I am sorry. I have not loved you the way I should. Help me to love you and keep on loving you. Why? Because you have loved me. And how has he loved us? Gave his life. And he loves us now and he loves us for eternity. And he says, love me first. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I trust that we will love the Lord. Pray for that every day, regularly. And see the warning. If you don't, I will remove your lampstand from its place. What a warning. A decade after John wrote Revelation, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus where he praised the Christians for their faithful endurance. He commended, commended them for the, because the people had taken seriously the word of Jesus. But sadly, later, this church at Ephesus lapsed. And in the Middle Ages, its Christian testimony had kind of disappeared. Jesus' warning to Ephesus is appropriate to any church, even to ours. 
as one writer put it, put it very well, no church, no church as a secure and permanent place in the world, it is continuously on trial. <laughs> we can't take it for granted, right? I never, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can ask John, we meet together, we never take for granted the Lord's kindness to us here at St. Stephen's. It drives us to humbleness. I can tell you that. Because every time I look at God's people and I think, God, you have been kind to us. You have treated St. Stephen's better than we deserve. So how is your love for Christ this morning? Because if you have a love for Jesus, it will change the way you think. If you have a love for Jesus, it makes radical changes in the way we live for Him. It means that I will say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to give of myself to you. Have my finances for the work of the gospel. Use my life for your glory. Because I love you. You are number one in my life. Take my life and let it be, Lord. Use it for you. Because you are precious to me. Because you have loved me and helped me to love and to serve you as my master and my savior. You see what it does? It takes a cold heart that has perhaps backslidden. says, Lord, because I love you, here I am. Poor, wretched, redeemed sinner like me. In your mighty hands. And this passage, friends, also gives us a wonderful assurance in the closing section there. The message, you as in here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This message is directed to all the churches. It is a universal message to the church of every age. Listen to what the Spirit says to one who overcomes. In the original, it is the overcoming one. That is, to the one who perseveres in loving Christ, to the very end, to such a person is given the right to eat of the tree of life. Now, I'm not going into the tree of life discussion this morning. You can look at Genesis 2 and 3. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They were driven out of the garden of Eden and God placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard it. Now, paradise beginning, paradise lost, and when Christ returns, we are given the tree of life, paradise restored in the new heavens and new earth. That is eternal life, unmarred by sin. God's people will live in the new heavens and the new earth. The love relationship that began will continue on for eternity. What a glorious and wonderful assurance. One of the hymns that we sing here is Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Over oh, a foretaste of glory divine. Blessed Assurance. We sang this morning, My Jesus, I love you. For you, all the follies I, of sin I resign. My Jesus, if ever I loved you, it is now. Do you? Do we? I pray this morning. Only the Spirit of God can do that. We, we, we can't force ourselves this. Only God's Spirit 
can help us love Christ more. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, there will be people up here after the service. Come and talk to them. And we would love to share what it means to know the love of Christ in your life. And to those of us who are backslidden, perhaps wandered away, come back, repent. And for us, keep on going. Because one day, we will be with the Lord in paradise. What a day. May the Lord increase my love, your love for him. I'm going to give you a a couple of moments to just reflect upon this. And in the quietness of our hearts, to bring that love before God. And then I'll close. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Help us, Lord, to deeply love you and to continue by your grace and your spirit to not forsake our first love. Amen.